if you're aware or not that uh, the beginning of last month was uh, the Platinum Jubilee of our Christian sister, Queen Elizabeth II. I believe Queen Elizabeth is a real believer in Christ. And uh, at the beginning of last month, there was a five-day gala celebration in Britain to celebrate her 70th year as the Queen. It was attended by many dignitaries from uh, various countries. It was broadcast around the world. I don't know if you saw any of that or even aware of it, but it was quite an event. Well, I want you to use your imagination now. Go back and imagine five or six months ago, you go to your mailbox, just like you normally would do to get your mail. You open it up, and there's the usual stuff, the bills and the flyers and all of that. But lo and behold, there's a large envelope of very heavy, rich paper. And your name and address are written on the front with obviously a, a, a classic fountain pen in flowery writing. And on the back is the royal seal of the House of Windsor. You open the envelope and uh, you find in there a card inviting you to uh, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And not only that, besides the invitation, there's a smaller card that says that accommodation has been arranged for you and your family at Buckingham Palace and that you're invited to dine privately with the Queen. Now, when you read that, you, you say, wait a second, somebody's pulling my leg here. This is just an elaborate joke. And you just you head to the trash can to throw it away. But as you do, you look on the back of one of these cards and there's an international phone number and says, you're invited to direct your queries. That's how the Brits say, ask your questions. Direct your queries to this number. You say, well, you know, uh, I'll, uh, whatever, I'll give it a try. So you dial the number and lo and behold, you're talking to the Queen's social secretary. And she confirms that this, in fact, is a legitimate invitation. So what do you do? Well, you tell, if you're working, you tell your boss you're going to have to take a week off in early June and you make arrangements with everybody else. If you have to, you take a second mortgage to get the money to buy tickets and take advantage of this remarkable invitation. Now, I'm using a hypothetical, obviously. None of us is likely ever to receive an, an invitation like that from Buckingham Palace or from the White House. But brothers and sister, the verses of Scripture I just read from Matthew 11 contain a much more wonderful and much more remarkable invitation than that, and it's for real. And so I'd like us to think about this invitation uh, in terms of four points this morning. Why this true invitation is more wonderful and more remarkable than any other that you could even imagine. I got four points for you, and the first one is this. This invitation's source is supremely glorious. The one from whom this invitation comes is supremely glorious. Uh, there is no one more glorious than Jesus Christ. And that's one reason I asked Mark to read from Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah 6 is a familiar passage to us uh, when the Lord called Isaiah to be a prophet and he had a vision of, of heaven's throne room. The Lord lifted up on his throne and the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. In John twelve forty one, John says, Isaiah saw Jesus and wrote of him. 
that glorious one on the throne in Isaiah 6 was the pre-incarnate Christ. And that's why I read what I read from Revelation chapter 1. Jesus, after His incarnation, death, His resurrection, the exalted Christ in heaven. John, the beloved disciple who laid on his breast during the Last Supper, fell down as if dead. His Jesus' glory was so remarkable that John was overwhelmed by it. And this is the one who spoke these words and gives this invitation. Now, in our text, Jesus shows, we, we see his, his glory in several particular ways. First, he's supremely glorious in his intimacy and his equality with God the Father. In uh, verses 25 to 27. Let me see. My pages have turned on me. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. The one whom Jesus addresses as Father is the Lord of heaven and earth who sovereignly reveals and withholds himself to whom he will. He's hidden certain things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to babes. And not only that, you and I could say that. We call him Father. He's our Father. But Jesus says something that we could never say. He says, um, No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. He claims a unique knowledge of the Father. Now we all can say we know God the Father in a certain way, but Jesus claims a unique knowledge as God Himself, the Eternal Son, He knows the Father fully and perfectly. So in His intimacy with the Father and His equality with the Father, He's supremely glorious. But not just that. He's supremely glorious in His authority and His ministry. He says in verse 27, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. He'll say at the end of this gospel when he gives a great commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And not only that, he says, no one knows the Father except those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus here claims that he has all authority, that the Father has given him all authority, and he alone, in a unique way, is able to reveal the Father to others. He's the revealer of the Father. So in that way also, he's glorious. And a third way I think we have in our text is that Jesus Christ is supremely glorious in his humility and his gentleness. He says, he uses the word in the New King James, I think it's translated meek. Um, I Nope, gentle and lowly in heart, or gentle and humble now, gentleness and humility go together just like pride and harshness tend to go together. When somebody's proud, when they think they're better than everybody else, they often are harsh. I mean, why shouldn't they be harsh with these people who are just, you know, little nothings? But when somebody is humble, when they don't have that attitude, they tend to be gentle. And Jesus says himself, he's both, I am gentle and humble or meek in heart. 
Now, you know, humility has not always been considered a virtue. The ancient Greeks and Romans didn't consider it. They said that's for slaves, not for free men. Humility. But in the biblical tradition, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, humility has always been considered virtue. First, because we are so small and sinful and God is so great and holy, we should be humble in His presence. But also, after the coming of our Lord Jesus, His incarnation, His life of service, His sacrificial death, He's the perfect model of humility. And so in the Christian and the biblical tradition, humility has always been seen as a virtue and Jesus embodied it perfectly. Paul says that in Philippians 2 when he's encouraging Philippians to to be humble. He says, have that mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ, who though he was equal with God, didn't account that as robbery or something to be held onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. And in that likeness, not only dying, but dying the death of the cross. He sets Jesus up as the epitome of humility. And therefore, God has given him a name above every name. So brothers and and sister, uh, this invitation comes from one who is supremely glorious in his intimacy with the Father, his equality with the Father, his authority, his ministry, and his gentleness and his humility. And this shows us a couple of things, I think, practically. It shows us how foundational, wonderful, and important the doctrine, the fact of the Trinity is. That in the one true God, the the nature of the one true God, there are three distinct and separate persons who from all eternity have known and loved each other. That's what makes us, in a sense, our different uh, personalities significant, that we reflect the image of God in our ability to relate to one another. It's a reflection of the nature of God himself. From all eternity, God has existed in perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit. It shows us how wonderful and important Christ's person and offices are, His twofold nature, that He is a man like us. He shares our nature, but far more wonderful, He's God. He's infinite and eternal God in one person. And also shows His offices. He is able and willing. You know, it's one thing to be willing to help somebody. Lots of parents want to help their children but often they don't have the ability to do it. It's something else to be willing, uh, to be able to do it. Uh, there are lots of rich people who are able to help people, but they don't aren't necessarily willing, but to have both the willingness and the ability, and we see in our Lord Jesus both. He's one of us. In, in human nature, He kept the law. He provided a perfect righteousness for us. He bore our sin. He rose for our justification. He reigns at the Father's right hand, preparing a place for us, carrying out the Father's plan for the building of the church and the fulfillment of history. And in the fullness of time, He's going to come back and vindicate us and take us into the new heavens and the new earth. But right now, He's humble compassionate and sympathetic. He can identify. Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. We've got a high priest who can sympathize. When we struggle in various ways, uh, we can go to him and be confident of his sympathy and grace. And it shows us how central to the gospel Christ is. He is the means by which all the grace and blessings of the gospel were uh, provided for us and come to us. And what a glorious and all-sufficient Savior we have in Him. How much reason we have to praise and thank God for Jesus Christ.
when you can't think of anything else for which to thank God, that's something that we can, and that should always be at the top of our list. Thank you for that wonderful Savior. And to thank and praise Him and to trust and lean upon Him to love, follow, serve, and submit to Him and to commend Him to other people as well. So the first point here is that this invitation comes from very literally the most glorious source possible in the entire universe. He's the one who gives this invitation, but the glory of the one extending it is in startling contrast to the ones that he extends it to. And that's the second point. This invitation's recipients are strikingly inglorious. The recipients of this invitation from this most glorious one are remarkably inglorious. Come to me, he says, all you who labor, uh, some would say uh, weary or work to the point of exhaustion and are heavy laden. That's who Jesus invites. Now, if he was talking about physical work, physical fatigue, he would probably be talking to poor people. Rich people, powerful people don't have to work hard like that. They can pay or force other people to do it for them. And Jesus knows all about that. He was a carpenter, a tradesman, a worker with hard materials, certainly wood. Some think he also may have worked with stone and so on. The, the word can be kind of broad, but it was hard work. Uh, there were uh, no forklifts, no power tools, no air conditioning when Jesus was working. He knows what it was what it's about to work physically hard, but that's not what he's talking about. He's obviously talking about soul labor because he goes on to talk about rest of soul. He's talking here not to the poor, uh, but to people of all classes who are spiritually and emotionally weary and heavy laden. Now, ultimately, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that all toil whether it's physical toil or spiritual, emotional toil, is a result of sin and the fall. And the point here is Jesus is speaking to those from all social classes whose souls are weary. He says, you'll find, I'll give you rest for your soul. Whose souls are weary and heavy laden because of guilt, shame, fear, grief, Disappointment, bitterness, discouragement, depression, despair, all kinds of things, especially beginning with sin and the effects of sin. But all of these things are parts of that. And that's who he's talking to here. The main point is Jesus is not giving this invitation to the beautiful people. The successful, the confident, the competent, the contented, the happy, the satisfied. He's given it to the exhausted, the weak the struggling, the failing, the desperate and inadequate, the needy. That's who this invitation comes to from this glorious one. And brothers and sisters, what a wonderful thing it is that God, the true and living God, is so compassionate. Do you remember... Uh, when Moses asked God on Mount Sinai, Lord, show me your glory. And what did the Lord do? He called him up to the top of the mountain. He placed him in a cleft of a rock. 
and he passed by and he proclaimed his name because in the Bible, uh, often names are very important because the name describes the character of the nature of the person whose name Jesus means Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. And the name of the Lord describes the character of the Lord. That's why we can't, shouldn't take it in vain. So God himself proclaims his own character, the Lord, the Lord God. What's the first thing he says after he declares his name? Do you remember? Depending on the translation, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Now that's included his justice, but God himself, as he declares his goodness and his glory uh, to Moses, the first thing he mentions as he declares his own character is his mercy and compassion. It's interesting. Psalm 86 is called a prayer of David. In verse 1, David begins, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. What's David's argument to why God ought to hear and answer his prayer? I am poor and needy. In fact, you find that two other places in the Psalter, Psalm 40, Psalm 70, the same thing, an argument as to why God should hear and answer because of our need, because he is so compassion. In Isaiah 55, that's why I asked um, to have those verses read, come everyone who thirsts and he who has no money, come buy and eat. That's an invitation to the needy. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. And you remember what Jesus said at one point when Philip said, Lord, show us the father. What did Jesus say? Anybody remember? You've seen me. You've seen. The if Father. you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus Christ, and one of the most striking things about our blessed Lord Jesus is His compassion. Why were the Pharisees so upset with Jesus? What's one of the main reasons the Pharisees were upset with Jesus? Do you remember? Because of their self righteousness. Yeah, but there's that's true, but. Well, and that's true too, but there's a recurring issue that they accuse him of repeatedly. Break, breaking the Sabbath. Why? Because he was constantly healing on the Sabbath. He was doing works of mercy and compassion on the Sabbath, and they thought he was breaking Sabbath. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever kept the Sabbath perfectly. And he felt, he, he showed. He demonstrated that there was nothing inconsistent. The character of God, he's so compassionate. Even on his holy day, he thought it was perfectly legitimate. And so again and again and again, that was the issue. Not just that he healed, but he healed on the Sabbath. He wept over Jerusalem. Point is, brothers, we see, and Jesus, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Sometimes people think, yeah, Jesus is compassionate with the Father. No, the Father is hard-nosed. We need Jesus to go to bat for us with the Father. We need him in a certain sense to represent Him, us as our mediator and, and to demonstrate that he's paid for our sins. But it's not because the Father is less compassionate. They both, our God is a compassionate God. 
And that's one of the things that this shows us. He offers this invitation to the needy. Another thing it shows us is the danger and destructiveness of pride and self-sufficiency. This is true psychologically and socially. Do you enjoy proud people? Are they pleasant to be around, to work for, to live with? I, I think most of us don't. And the prouder they are, the more difficult they are. I mean, with bragging and all kinds of other things that go with it. It's awful to consider you could emulate them. Well, we're all naturally proud, you know, to, to some extent. Again, that's a, a besetting sin for some more than others. But the point is, God says, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's the point here. That's who this grace is being offered to. Not to the proud, not to the, the, the self-sufficient. People today often want to feel good about themselves when they have no right to do so. In the, and through the lens of the law of God, they have no right to feel good about themselves. I mean, the creation cries out that there is a creator who's infinitely wise and good, infinitely worthy of our praise and our love. We should love him with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, and we don't. And the lack of a sense of spiritual need disqualifies many, keeps them from coming to Christ. They don't feel guilty. They don't feel needy. Again, Jesus begins by saying the Father hides certain things from the wise and intelligent and reveals them to babes. It's interesting, in Matthew 18, 2, He called a child to Himself, put Him in the midst of the disciples, and said, unless you become like this child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And He connects that humility with being childlike. And it says the Father hides these things from the wise and intelligent and reveals them to babes, to the humble. If our chief goal is to remain pain-free in this life, to have a comfortable, pain-free life, if we're not willing, at least at times, to have our hearts troubled and laboring, we disqualify ourselves from this invitation. You're not qualified if you're not willing. It's possible to be too good to come to Jesus. At least people think they are. They're not really. But some people think they're too good in their own mind. I don't need that. But on the other hand, if needy describes you, spiritually needy, which is true of all of us, but needy in other ways, uh, grieving, uh, struggling with other kinds of things, then cheer up. If your heart is weary and exhausted this afternoon, Jesus has in issued this invitation to you. And it shows us one way that suffering, God uses suffering for good in our lives. Suffering can humble us and bring us to an end of ourselves. It can help us to see our sinfulness and our weakness so that we qualify for this wonderful invitation. Again, people who feel perfectly self-sufficient and content, Jesus is not talking to them. And suffering can show us the truth about ourselves and how weak and how sinful we are. And as we experience that, then it prepares us, qualifies us for this invitation. You qualify for Jesus' invitation this afternoon. You do if you ever are, have been weary and heavy laden of soul. So while the source of this invitation is supremely glorious, its recipients are the very opposite. 
And that makes this invitation even more remarkable as we consider our next point, and that is this invitation's substance is profoundly glorious. The substance of the invitation is profoundly glorious. Notice three things that this supremely glorious Christ invites these desperately needy people to do. Three things. First, 28, come to me. He doesn't say, come to my capital, come to my palace, come to some of my servants, some angels or whoever, and they will minister you. He says, come to me. It's an invitation to a personal encounter and relationship with Christ himself. It's remarkable and wonderful. And then there's something else. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Now, I assume everybody knows here what a yoke is or was. In those days, it was basically a large piece of wood that was shaped so that it could fit over the shoulders of a large animal like an oxen or a donkey or something like that. And there were different things, straps or other things used. But the point was it would, it would bind together at least two animals so that their, their power could be harnessed to carry, uh, pull wagons and pull burdens and so on. But it was a means of uniting two animals together to take, uh, to take a yoke was to unite these two animals and it was to enter into an intimate relationship. You're literally rubbing shoulders with each other. Those animals rubbing. Jesus says, enter in and take my yoke upon yourself. Enter into this yoke with me. Uh, having come to me, enjoy my constant presence, my fellowship and my help. Now it also means submit to my lordship because in, in those teams of animals, there was always one that was kind of the, the lead animal, whether he was the biggest and strongest or the oldest and wisest, there was one that would kind of lead. And Jesus Christ, when we're yoked with him, he's definitely the leader. So to, to enter the yoke not only means to come into a, a close, intimate relationship with him, but to submit to his leadership. But notice what he says at the very end about this yoke. My yoke is easy or it could be translated pleasant and comfortable. Uh, you can have yokes that are poorly made and they chafe. Uh, they rub against the shoulders of the animals and can cause them to, uh, to bleed and they hurt because they're not shaped well. There are others that were shaped well and so they would be comfortable and pleasant. And he says, my burden is light. And one reason that burden is light is because he pulls the greater share of it. I mean, we can have some very heavy burdens. I don't know about you, I, I've experienced that in, in life in a variety of ways. My guess is you have too. But uh, his, his uh, burden is light uh, because even when it's very heavy, he helps to carry and pull the greater share. So come to me, take my yoke upon you. And the third thing he says is learn from me. Take me as your tutor your personal teacher. He doesn't say, uh, you know, and I've heard of this and it's a wonderful thing. Wealthy people sometimes, or even if they're not wealthy, uh, provide sometimes for, for um, their children or even other people to get a good education that they couldn't afford otherwise. And so they, they provide. Jesus is not just saying, I'm going to uh, send you to a good... He says, learn from me. I'm going to be your 
tutor, the, the greatest tutor imaginable in all the world. It's related to the, the, the Greek word from which we get the term disciple. Become my pupils, become my students, my disciples. And notice it assumes we all have a lot to learn and that Jesus is both able and willing to teach us himself. This brings us back to the importance of humility. Know-it-alls need not apply. People who think they don't need to learn anything, that Jesus can't teach them anything, disqualify themselves. But those who are wise enough to know uh, how much we need to learn and that he is the best, the most wonderful teacher, the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he says, learn from me. And when I was finishing up this degree the last few years at Westminster, I was privileged to have as a professor uh, who became a friend, Dr. Kent Hughes. I don't know, uh, George, whether you recognize Kent's name or not. He's uh, you know, written a number of books and edited a series of um, commentaries. Uh, and I mean, he's a wonderful scholar, but a very godly man. And it was a blessing just to have him as a teacher. But because I was so much older than everybody else, I think, in the program and pretty close to his age, we actually became friends as well. And it was a wonderful thing to have him as both a friend and a teacher. But there's no comparison when we're talking about having that relationship with Christ. Have you ever accepted Jesus' invitation? Have you ever come to Him in this special way? Now, there's a sense in which we do that in a definitive way for once and for all at the beginning of the Christian life when we realize our sin and our helplessness and we come to Him and, and, and receive Him as Lord and Savior uh, in repentance and faith. But there's another sense in which it's a continual process. The Christian life is a process of continually coming to Him. Getting to know Him better as our souls are burdened, as we labor in various ways. Uh, and again, that's one way God uses suffering is to drive us to Christ, to, to motivate us to come to Him again and again and again so that we might be refreshed, that we might learn more from Him, get to know Him better, and so on. Brothers and sisters, true religion... Saving Christianity is not just a matter of subscribing to the right doctrines. As important as that is, and it's vitally important, but there are going to be people in hell who believed in the Westminster Confession and had sound doctrine. The Christian life, biblical religion, is a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And it's vitally important that we know the truth and affirm it and share it. But we, it's not, that's not an end in itself. The truth is a means to drive and to draw us to the true and living God, in this case, to Jesus so that we might know Him better. So knowing Him, learning from Him, walking with Him are all wonderful and essential elements of this glorious invitation. And we should embrace each one of them joyfully and diligently. So the things which the glorious Christ invites His needy people to do are exceedingly glorious simply because He is. But there's at least one more aspect of this glorious invitation we have yet to consider. It's our last point this afternoon. The fruit of this invitation is exceedingly glorious. The fruit, the result, the promise of this invitation, I will give you rest 
or refreshment for your souls. Now, and he's, he mentions that not once, but twice in this short passage. Now, physical rest is necessary and it's wonderful. We all need to get enough sleep to be healthy. And if you have worked hard, uh, uh, you know, and I'm sure we all have had the experience of how wonderful it is to be able to take a break and, and just to collapse and, and rest and, and, and all. Physical rest is uh, wonderful and it's important, but soul rest is the best rest. Proverbs 18, 14, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? If his spirit is crushed, if he gives up, uh, then it's all over. You've probably known people, and maybe some of you. I don't know you very well. Maybe some of you are like that. I know George has dealt with a number of, of physical issues, and um, I would never make light of the, the difficulty of the, the physical pain and all that you've had to deal with, George, but uh, you've continue to trust the Lord. And so your spirit has been strong and it's enabled you to do that. But the point here in this verse is when the spirit is crushed, who can bear it? Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. We know that. I mean, the doctors know that if your spirit is people uh, give, give up, then, you know, then the body just withers up. So soul rest is the most important rest. And that's what Jesus is promising here in the upper room discourse. The Jesus little personal sermon to his disciples in the upper room before he was betrayed and arrested in the garden and taken away to be crucified. He promised them, among other things, supernatural peace and joy. Peace, I leave with you my peace i give to you not as the world gives to you do i give to you now what's the difference between the world's peace and jesus peace well the peace the world gives is based on circumstances as long as everything's going well okay i'm, I'm at peace I, I'm, I'm you know i'm not worried as long as the stock market's uh doing well or at least not uh you know and and you can mention other things but the point, the, the peace that Jesus gives is supernatural in that we can experience that when out, outwardly everything is going wrong. You know, um, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, uh, uh, that peace beyond all understanding that the Lord promises when we bring our, our uh, request to Him with prayer and thanksgiving. And He also promised a supernatural joy. He says, my joy I give to you. And he says, I want your joy to be full. And he says, this is a joy that no man can take away from you. He promised those to his disciples. He purchased those with his blood. And he imparts, us to his, to his, imparts them to his people through his spirit and his word. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Psalm 119 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Jeremiah 15, 16, thy words were found and I ate them and thy word became to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And so that's what Jesus promises here. This rest, particularly of soul, which is such a wonderful thing. And among other things, it underscores and assumes that the heart is the most important part of our lives. Our bodies are important too. Jesus redeemed us all. 
body and soul. And, uh, and once the resurrection comes, the body uh, will, be, uh, will have a perfect body, just like Jesus' body. But even now, and at this point, the heart is especially important. Uh, watch over your heart with all diligence, said Solomon, for out of the heart flow the springs of the affairs of life. And again, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, hearts that can be refreshed and uh, filled with His joy and His peace. Again, are you soul-weary, soul-needy this afternoon? Then let your need humble you and draw you. Let it drive you to embrace Jesus' invitation and find wonderful soul rest in Him. So just to review, this invitation source is supremely glorious. Its recipients are strikingly inglorious. Its substance is profoundly glorious, and its fruit or its results is exceedingly glorious. In just a minute, we're going to conclude our service by singing Psalm 23, in which David the shepherd reflects on the blessing of being one of the Lord's sheep. And it's especially interesting to note that as as David reviews the benefits of being one of the Lord's sheep, one of the very first things he speaks of is, you restore my soul. But that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is the great shepherd and this invitation is about soul restoration. You will find rest for your souls. Small wonder, too, that even in glory, when our souls will no longer need to be restored or refreshed the way they do now, John describes how Christ will continue to shepherd and care for His formerly weary and formerly heavy-laden ones who heeded, who accepted this invitation in time. This is what he says in Revelation 7.16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Hallelujah! What an invitation to come to Him, learn from Him, walk with Him, and find rich and wonderful rest now and forever. Amen. Shall I pray, or you want someone else to do that, Mark? Uh, why don't you pray briefly now, and then we'll uh, pray. Have a, a time of prayer? Sure. Okay. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for uh, the fact that these words are absolute truth. Uh, while it's true that Matthew was an apostle, an eyewitness, uh, we uh, are confident that he actually heard Jesus speak these words. And yet, even more than that, he was carried along by your spirit as he recorded and wrote them in his gospel. And we thank you uh, that you are such a compassionate and gracious God to be so infinitely majestic. Uh, at the same time, you are gracious and uh, you give your grace to the humble and oppose the proud. Lord, we confess that we all are naturally proud. We deny, we ignore, we overlook our needs, spiritual needs and other needs as well. We want to flatter ourselves that we are self-sufficient. We pray that you'd grant us the grace uh, of humility 
and wisdom, uh, uh, not just to bring uh, to, to you our spiritual needs, and we thank you that we can do that, that, that our sins are uh, washed away by the blood of Christ and covered over by His perfect righteousness, but we thank you that as we go through this world and continue to, to struggle in various ways, that this invitation continues to be so wonderfully uh, available and applicable to us. Grant us not only to avail ourselves of it ourselves, but to share it with others for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.